1: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday,
2: I will call upon you to do a service
1: for me. Play the Godfather
2: now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the
1: family.
0: VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus. <laughs>
1: Pennsylvania, was unknown to paranormal enthusiasts until the Kevin Paul Amazon bestseller, Haunted Hills and Hollows, What Lurks in Green County, Pennsylvania, revealed the phenomena lurking in and the haunted history of the southwestern corner of the Keystone State. Even more high strangeness can be found in book two of the series, Kevin Paul's Haunted Hills and Hollows 2, still lurking in Greene County, Pennsylvania. One thing is certain, it is nearly impossible to be alone in Greene County. These riveting books, Haunted Hills and Hollows and Haunted Hills and Hollows 2 by author Kevin Paul in paperback, Kindle and audiobooks are available now on Amazon. Longtime UFO and Bigfoot researcher Stan Gordon is releasing his fourth casebook called "Creepy Cryptids and Strange UFO Encounters of Pennsylvania." Included are many cases from across his decades of research, from Bigfoot to giant flying creatures, many UFOs, aquatic beasts to hairless, sickly-looking humanoids. Enjoy a journey into a realm that suggests that present-day sightings of monsters might be real mystifying creatures, none of which are supposed to exist. Some cases include one of the creepiest crawling cryptids of all time. Was there an even stranger Mothman encounter near Pittsburgh in 1966? The small Bigfoot and the strange sphere of light. Tall hairless humanoid with glowing yellow eyes that follows man to his house. Stan presents some startling cases that suggest that some of the unknown creatures being reported may be much stranger than just flesh and blood. Could some UFOs, and even some cryptids, possibly be visitors from another dimension? Order your copy now of Creepy Cryptids and Strange UFO Encounters of Pennsylvania. Stan's new book, as well as his other case books, are available online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Or visit his website at www.StanGordon.info. Do you remember how great paranormal talk radio was in the 80s and 90s? Night Dreams Talk Radio brings back to you talk radio like you remember, with your host, Gary Anderson, broadcasting to you live from his secret compound deep in the great Northwest. Now, here's Gary.
3: And here I am. Well, here it is, the 30th, just one more day of the month. And boy, then we're going to go into April Fool's Day when another Another asteroid is going to go past the Earth on April Fool's Day. Well, again, it's coming out more from NASA about this big mass. that came from the sun, a solar flare. Actually, 17 are on the way. They're traveling at, ready for this, 2 million miles per hour. That is scary. And again, they're telling people, well, the Internet, you're, Uh, TV and all radio could be affected. And some of the weaker power, uh, power grids can go maybe down tomorrow. So be prepared for something tomorrow. If not, you might see some strange colors in the sky. Also in the news, the Loch Ness Monster has been spotted for the first time this year, according to an expert who's been studying the Loch Ness Monster. Again, you know, there's all kinds of theories what this could be. A huge eel, because that lake does have huge eels. But again, there's a big difference between something that looks prehistoric and maybe a 17-foot eel, so I don't know on that one. Well, if you could live at least 150 years, would you? Well, there's a catch to it. You would have to have your brain, all your thoughts, all your emotions downloaded into a computer, and you'd be, well, on the multiverse. I don't know if I would like that. You know, not to have the, the touch and feel, but then again, James, think about this. You wouldn't know what was real or not, would you? Because... It would be like a hologram, a symbolization of, of things out there. I, I don't think if your brain was downloaded into it, you could even comprehend what's going on.
2: No, you raise good points. Matter of fact, that really would be like living in the matrix uh, to, the, to the max. I mean, I don't even know if, it, if you could handle that. Like, download your, your memories and just live on in the machine. So, yeah, uh, so to speak that that whole aspect is just scary. I don't, I don't want it. You can have
3: it. What is that though? That's not life that we are accustomed to. So you know, yeah, they can maybe keep your thoughts and your brain thoughts at least a hundred and fifty years. But again, you know, how can I say it? Are you going to fall in love with another? Uh, download of another th- brain thoughts. I don't know. I, I just the whole thought of it just kind of turns me off. Bruce Willis. He has been for the last couple of years, and some of his movies he's been making. He's been having a hard time remembering his lines. Now it's come out today that he's totally quit acting. He has a disease that affects well communication, being able to talk, put words together, and even understand words, and that. Is a big hit because I'll tell you what I like Bruce Will- uh, Willis and he's made some really awesome movies. So I mean, again, my heart goes out to him and his family. James, I mean, that is a big shock today.
2: It is a big shock, and you know, I just—it's funny you mention that because I just seen one of his latest movies, and he—he he honestly did seem kind of off. And I—I I never knew about this, but I bet that's what was going on. But and he didn't have very much a very big part throughout the movie either, and he was supposed to be a co-star. So I can I, I see where it all kind of comes together. But boy, that would be a shock. Uh, he's made a lot of good movies. Pulp Fiction was the one that I can re- sticks out to me.
3: Oh yeah, Pulp uh, Fiction. You know, again too, they said that in the last two movies he made. Actually, when you see Bruce Willis on there, most of the time it wasn't Bruce Willis; it was a body double that he was even having trouble doing his, you know, physical things, too. And they even tried putting headphones into his ear, you know, giving him his lines. But it got to a point that he couldn't put words together anymore. And that is what happens when you get older. It can be anything from a stroke, uh, dementia, or, uh, you know, they just don't know what happens. But it really happens with older people. And it comes on really fast. One day you're talking normal. The next day you're having trouble putting words together. That's scary. Well, in the UK, a security camera catches a creepy haunted doll that is moving on its own. Now, you know about stuff about like that. What could cause something like that?
2: Well, I'll tell you, it could be a few things, but it sounds like there's a spirit attached to it. And listen, dolls are already creepy, Gary, really So you get a spirit attached to them, that's just putting gas on the fire. I've seen these things, and no thank you. You can have them. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Nope. Mm -mm.
3: Okay, well, I mean, what can you do to stop it if you have a doll that it's all of a sudden, you know, doing and moving? and, And, you know, that'd be really creepy here in your room at night, and you have a doll there on the headboard, and it's watching you.
2: Yeah, yeah, they watch you all right, but you can fermentically seal those. Uh, it, there's different ways, but you can um, seal them in glass with around salt and some other words and, and other trinkets you can put around them, keep them sealed and keep them calmed down. Uh, there's different things along those lines. I mean, I think the Warren's got a whole bunch of those in their base, as a matter of fact, and that's what they do, basically. Yeah, well, a
3: 500-pound bear in Arkansas got busted by the police. He set the alarms off at a local tavern, which was closed for the night. The bear was caught drinking beer, and he was under 21.
2: Gary, you cracked me. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of that story where the cop pulled over the, the horse for driving and drinking or something. But there we go again, these bears. How many stories have we come across in the last three or four years these bears are encroaching, and while well, they're drinking, now they're drinking underage, uh, allegedly.
3: Yeah, well, yeah. Can you imagine, You, how do you arrest a 500-pound bear? Come on. But the, the whole point is, you know, maybe there's a bunch of alcoholic beer uh, bears running around.
2: I, there's got to be, with all the stories we've come across, they come across the, the news line there about these bears. There's something about beer and bears. They they just go together, and they just love it. Uh, and now, well, they, I guess they go on the highways, too.
3: Yeah, that's the interesting part. God, I, now I'm thirsty for a beer. Anyway, I have to tell everybody out there, I'm going to have to take a few days off. I should be back Monday. I have to have some medical stuff done. And, uh, I'm not going to be around for a few days while I get this stuff done. And, uh, we will try to get some replays on tomorrow and Friday, but, uh, you know, gee, I hate going into the doctors and hospitals and stuff like that. Well, we'll be right back with our great guests. So get ready, get yourself up on that easy chair, put a log in that fire, pour yourself something warm to drink. We're going to talk about D B Cooper tonight. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who, well, hijacked a 727 and uh, jumped out of the back of it. So we'll be talking about that. So stay tuned.
1: We'll be right back. Take a journey of adventure and discovery for the enigmatic giants of the forests. Read On the Trail of Bigfoot by Mike Dupler. The author himself describes it this way. Having found possible Sasquatch evidence, namely trees driven into the ground upside down, thought to be territory markers, led me to investigate this creature in my native Ohio. Several years and many forays into Bigfoot territory, I have found incredible evidence, which inspired my book, On the Trail of Bigfoot. Bigfoot is alive and has many fantastic abilities. The evidence is out there for all to see, but you need to know what to look for my book will inspire those who have answered the call to seek this elusive creature the bigfoot the truth is out there read on the trail of bigfoot by mike dupler available now at amazon.com barnesandnoble.com and indiebound.org Hi, this is Val Von Torn of Metatron Power and Light. You're listening to Gary Anderson
4: and Night Dreams Talk Radio.
3: And you sure are. And thank you, Val, for that nice, nice intro to the show. James, what can you tell the listeners about our guest tonight?
2: Well, our guest tonight is Drew Beeson. And Drew is an author of three true crime books, including The Zodiac Killer and the D.B. Cooper Mystery, which he will be discussing tonight. Now, Drew can be heard on the True Crime YouTube channel and a few others as well.
3: Welcome to the show, Drew. How are you doing, my friend?
5: Doing great. How are you, Gary?
3: I'm alive, and that's better than the others. I'm still wondering if I should think about, get when I get older, to have my, my thoughts and all my memories and everything downloaded on the computer, but... Boy, I don't know if it'd be X-rated or R-rated.
5: <laughs> I'm with James on that one. I'll pass.
3: I yeah, I, I, thank you. Well, I got to ask you a question. What got you into investigating crime cases?
5: I just always had a you know just a a, a thirst for more knowledge of some of these classic unsolved American crimes, like the Zodiac Killer case and DB Cooper. Two that I consider probably in the top five of just uh, you know, just classic American unsolved cases. I love the mystery of it. You know, who was this person and why are, you know, have they never been found? And I just wanted to, to dig in as much as I could. And, and, you know, for my own, for my own self, I just want to know who these people were. I just, I, I love a good mystery, but it, it would, I, I don't want it to go on forever. I want to get some resolution while I'm still alive of, uh, of, you know, solving some of these classic crimes.
3: The Zodiac Killer, how much time did you spend on that one investigating it?
5: You know, uh, off and on for about three years, about the same as D.B. Cooper. You know, I got into it, watched some documentaries, and then just really started doing some hardcore research. I mean, it's not my full-time job, but it's, a you know, a definite hobby that I'm passionate about. And, uh, you know, i put as much time into it as I can.
3: How did the Zodiac Killer, uh, how did they ever narrow it down?
5: Um, You know, it's, it's it's never really been narrowed down. There's still a prime suspect in the case, a guy, a gentleman named uh, Arthur Lee Allen, that, uh, who a movie about the Zodiac is mostly about uh, based on a, a book by a guy named Robert Graysmith. And uh, he remains the top suspect to this day, the prime suspect in the Zodiac Killer case. But uh, he's never been completely proven to be the Zodiac Killer. There's just a lot of solid circumstantial evidence going for him. Very,
3: very interesting, well, maybe someday, with our technology advancing in DNA and all that stuff, maybe they can actually pinpoint who did it
5: that's the hope you know they what what they have in the zodiac killer case is a lot of uh, written correspondence. So the hope is that they can extract DNA from uh, one of the flaps of the letters that he sent or beneath a, a postage stamp that he sent. They thought they got a DNA profile from a letter that he sent in 1969, but it later turned out that the sample came from outside of the stamp, and it wasn't really handled that well. And it's a really weak DNA sample, so it's it's uh, unfortunately not a good DNA sample, which is something that they did have in the Golden State Killer case where they were able to use uh, DNA familial um, ancestry uh, background search to narrow down who it could have been, and that's how they led to the arrest of uh, Joe D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer because they had such good DNA left at the crime scenes and uh, were able to use that uh, that technology and the method of uh, – you know, these DNA databases where they can go in and see, okay, this person's related to this person and then just start narrowing down uh, by geography. They know that we found someone that's probably a, you know, maybe a distant relative or a a third cousin. And then they can, you know, they kind of know the age of who they're looking for. And that's how they finally zeroed in on Jody Angelo. And we're we're able to solve that a long, long time cold case of the golden state killer. So I'm not as optimistic in the Zodiac case because we just don't have that that, that really good uh, DNA sample to start with like they did in the Golden State case.
3: How long does DNA last? I mean, you know, if it's not stored right or, or however they store it, is that something that could last forever or does it break down with age?
5: It absolutely breaks down with age as far as how good the samples can be. And, you know, the technology is getting better. Now they have what's called touch DNA where they can uh, take smaller samples and make uh, a a full genetic profile out of those. Some of these uh, labs like Parabon and uh, there's another one near me in in Texas. It's doing some really fantastic work and closing a lot of uh, cold cases with this new DNA technology. But unfortunately, it, it does get old. It does degrade if it wasn't stored right. And, uh, you know, so that, that is a challenge, but, uh, you know, it's technology versus the age of the DNA is kind of a thing we have going on now.
3: Very interesting. Now, moving on to D.B. Cooper, was, did they ever at that time, did they even think about collecting DNA?
5: Absolutely not. And when you think about the D.B. Cooper case, uh, when D.B. Cooper, and we'll talk about how that all played out, but when he was, um, on the flight that he hijacked, he smoked eight Raleigh filter tip cigarettes.
1: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Destroyed by the FBI, which is uh, really crazy. Obviously, DNA did not exist back in 1971. But the FBI usually does not get rid of any evidence because they understand that that could play a part. Uh, later in a criminal conviction you know just having the fact that hey this is our suspect and he's known to smoke uh this brand of cigarette well prove it how do you know what DB Cooper smoked Cause you you can't prove it now because you threw them away so it's really strange to me that the the FBI would have destroyed the cigarettes but that's uh what I understand from another DB Cooper researcher named Eric Allis uh he's um uh, confident that the cigarettes were destroyed and that's unfortunate because that would have been the best source of DNA you know, from D.B. Cooper. So uh, they may have uh, they may have an opportunity, and they've already tried this, to get a DNA sample from microparticles that were found on D.B. Cooper's tie. He left a black tie on the plane after he jumped out of it, and they were able to uh, put this tie under a microscope and extract tiny little particles from it. A group called the Citizen Sleuths were doing that, and they tried to uh, make a DNA profile from those particles and unfortunately it's just uh didn't really go anywhere it didn't it did not uh, make a, a, a good dna profile so they do not have db cooper's dna right now um but we're fortunate that something may turn up soon i mean i've heard a story about maybe that someone that worked at the fbi took one of the cigarettes home and they, that might reappear um, you know and there's this there's some things out there like that that maybe we'll get fortunate and something will turn up on them
3: well to the people there it doesn't know about the hijacking with the D, db cooper uh what year did it take place and can you walk us through what how it all trans you know what happened i mean how did he pull it off
5: absolutely well how it happened was it was a late afternoon on thanksgiving eve of 1971 a man wearing business attire carrying an anti shake case bought a one way ticket from portland oregon to seattle washington he identified himself only as dan cooper and that's the name that the ticket agent for northwest orient airlines wrote down on his ticket uh the gentleman boarded flight 305 and he sat in the back of the plane in seat 18c which was an aisle seat so just after takeoff the man handed a flight attendant a note and uh the flight attendant thought the man was hitting on her, so she just stuck the note in her pocket, and he grabbed her by the arm and said, Miss, I really need you to read that note. And uh, so she opened up the note, and the note said, um, Miss, I, you know, I have a bomb, and I want you to sit by me. So she knew this was serious. Something bad was going on. So she sat next to him, uh, you know, Dan Cooper, as he was calling himself, and he uh, began to tell her his demands. And she would write and started writing his demands down. And the main demands were $200,000 in $20 bills. And he also asked for four parachutes. And that's two sets of parachutes. He asked for two front and two back. And that was actually really smart because they were going to believe that he was going to take a hostage with them. Very smart. And he also said uh, when the plane was going to land in Seattle that he wanted a fuel truck there uh, ready to fuel up the plane. So she took the notes up to the cockpit and told him what was going on. Flight was being hijacked. And the uh, the cockpit crew immediately called the, the head people at Northwest Orient Airlines and told them what was going on. And, uh, well, let me we go back to something that was really important. He showed her what was inside the anti-Shay case, and that was uh, a bomb. It, it had what looked like sticks of dynamite with wires, and that was pretty convincing. And she looked at that. Uh, and felt like, you know, this is serious. This guy means business. So goes up to the cockpit, tells the crew what's going on. And they called Northwest Orient and they immediately decided to comply with the hijackers demands. So the plane lands in, uh, at SeaTac airport in Seattle, it parks at a remote part of the, uh, runway, you know, far away from, where the plane would usually land and, and let off and that was smart for db cooper because he thought there would be snipers there so he wanted the plane as far away as it could be the fuel truck shows up fuels up the plane and they bring onto the plane um, his uh, ransom two hundred thousand dollars and it came in a uh bank bag and not a knapsack that he requested they brought four parachutes two front and two back so he let uh, all the passengers, he let he let them off the plane. They didn't even realize the plane was being hijacked until they got off of the plane and into the airport itself. So he decides to keep some of the flight crew on. Flight takes off from Seattle, and uh, somewhere above, somewhere around the Portland, Oregon area, around Vancouver, Washington, Portland, Oregon area, just over the border, he jumps out of the plane with the money and uh, took the briefcase with him, and he's never seen again. Huge manhunt huge man ensues uh, over days and weeks, months, and not a sign of D.B. Cooper or his money is ever found until uh, February 1980. It was actually February 10th, 1980. An eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was at a picnic with his family at a, a little beach along the Columbia River outside of Vancouver, Washington, called the Tina Bar. And uh, they were going to build a little fire. And the young boy started digging and looking for wood to make this fire. And he dug up three stacks of $20 bills that were stacked on top of each other. And that later turned out to be $5,800 of D.B. Cooper's loot, part of the $200,000. And that was confirmed because all the bills were tracked by serial numbers. So they immediately were able to tell that that was indeed D.B. Cooper's money. Uh, The young boy got to keep part of that money after some negotiations and that's the last anything's ever happened that was big in this case, the part of that money turning up. So that's, you know, the basic story of D.B. Cooper.
3: Very interesting. Now, when he got on the the plane, too, they, what, figured he had a disguise, too, uh, from what he normally would look like?
5: Yeah, you know, he's wearing this business attire. People assumed that he was a businessman. He was wearing dark sunglasses. So that was all part of the part of his disguise. And, uh, you know, this guy was, uh, you know, calm as a cucumber, as they say, when, when he pulled this off, which was just something very rare. And that really drew me into the case was just reading about how calm he was. How could anybody be calm hijacking an airplane and jumping out into not so great weather at night, because this probably drew on a little, dragged on a little longer than he wanted it to. So it was nighttime at that point. And any kind of skydiving at night is a whole different ball game, uh, even for experienced skydivers, a lot of uh, recreational skydivers do not have night jumps under their belt. and They're a lot more difficult because you you, you, can't, see, you can't have a point of reference on the ground. So this was a, a difficult jump in, in anybody's book.
3: Well, again, too, where he jumped, if I remember right, it was very rugged terrain, too. So, I mean, you know, the, the, again, if somebody wasn't really experienced... I mean, even somebody, even uh, halfway experienced, but not really experienced, the, the jump could have been fatal.
5: Absolutely, he was uh, jumping over the Pacific Northwest. Lots of uh, lots of water and lots of trees, and uh, going into the water probably would have been a pretty certain death for most people because he, you know, the, the water was so cold. If he had fallen into the Columbia River, he probably would have frozen to death. And, uh, you know, and then jumping into that dense forest, it's easy to break a leg or an arm or something coming down, hitting the trees you can't really see at night. So uh, extremely dangerous for for anyone.
3: Oh, yeah. And again, too, if you're out in a dense forest area and and you break a leg or anything or even a foot where you can't walk, the odds are surviving is not very, not very good. A lot of hunters go out in the woods. And something happens where they get injured and they succumb to that injury. You know, again, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you break your leg, what are you going to do? How are you going to get anywhere?
5: Yeah, that that's, that's very, very difficult stuff to be going into with, with no experience. And, you know, hunters have hunted those areas ever since this happened over, you know, 50 years ago. And they never found any bones. They never found a parachute. Very interesting. If you did, if you jump with a parachute, that's pretty visible. And if he died on the way down, he wouldn't exactly been able to have buried it. So never found a parachute. Never found the bones. The only thing they ever found was that fifty eight hundred dollars. Uh, they thought they found a placard from that same flight three hundred five. Uh, uh, Boeing 727. And they're not even sure that that, that placard came from that flight. So it's really just the money that was ever found the hundred dollars by Brian Ingram.
3: Very interesting. We need to take about a two minute break. We'll be back with Drew Moore. We're going to talk a little bit more about, well, what he did on that plane and all that stuff. So stay tuned. You're listening to
1: Night Dreams Talk Radio. Meet the Totally Ninja Raccoons. Three raccoons who become ninjas because they already have the masks. The Totally Ninja Raccoons books are short adventures with quick chapters, specially structured to encourage reluctant readers. Each book has the Totally Ninja Raccoons encountering a cryptid. The monsters are presented in a fun, not-so-scary way. (laughs) Said not so scary! Uh, readers are encouraged to do their own research and make up their own minds about the possible existence of Bigfoot, the Jersey Devil, aliens, and more. The Totally Ninja Raccoons are available on Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. You can buy autographed copies direct from the author at kevincoolidge.org. That's kevincoolidge.org for the Totally Ninja Raccoons. Is your mind really a time machine? Can you change your past, erasing your past mistakes? Can you visit... Parallel future realities, drawing your goals to you like magic? At Harvard University, brain imaging techniques prove the human brain is a time machine. Astrophysicist Michio Kaku says thinking is really time traveling. A book called Mind, Time, and Power by Anthony Hamilton is loaded with amazing new insights and jam-packed with thought exercises to build your brain like an athlete builds his biceps. It's the new psychology for the 21st century. Get and read Mind, Time, and Power by Anthony Hamilton. Available on Amazon or at mindtimeandpower.com. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Night Dreams brings on the night worldwide. Did you know you can find us on your favorite app? And now you can watch us live on YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our channel and give us a thumbs up. And now here's
3: gary and here i am i keep thinking every time he says that johnny carson show you know and ad mcmahon would say here's johnny but anyway here you know i don't know again uh drew a lot of things was interesting i think another reason why he requested those extra parachutes like you mentioned to make him think that he's going to take take hostages and have them jump the other thing that comes to my mind is that if they're thinking other people are going to jump with them they're not going to give them a parachute that won't open exactly so i know that's what he was probably thinking there
5: yes very very smart
3: you know when that happened i remember the news at the time because you know i I grew up in the northwest here in Washington state I mean it was in the news for a long period of every day and people were seeing who they thought was DB Cooper everywhere
5: Yeah that must have been that must have been great I would have loved to have been around when it happened
3: Yeah I tell you every news uh, every night in the news oh they DB Cooper was uh, seen in Longview Kelso and all kinds of different places I, again you know uh what do you think do you ever sit back and wonder you know what your thoughts what was he trying to to accomplish on here because to if i was gonna kidnap people that's what it was and then hijack an aircraft which you know you're gonna go away for a long time why only two hundred thousand dollars
5: that's a good point. You know that's brought up a lot. You know, part of it is is the weight coming down. I mean, if 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 you're if you're weighted too heavy, you can spin out, which is it's definitely part of it. He probably also knew. Uh, you know, a twenty dollar bill back then is is similar to a hundred dollar bill now in terms of value. Oh yeah, but you know there were higher denominations, but that was a, would have been easier to track. I think that you know I think it was pretty well planned. I do think it was money motivated. More than just proving a point, I know a lot of people try to argue, well, the government set this up because they wanted to to tighten up air, you know, safety on airlines as far as things being hijacked. But I just don't think they would have to have gone to the level of, you know, having a DB Cooper on the plane and doing this because so many things could have gone wrong. There were air marshals back then and back in in 1971 you could easily carry a gun on a plane if you had it in a pocket or a a bag or a lady's purse no one was checking your purses back then this is so far before 9-11 it's hard for people now to even believe that but it would have been really easy to get a handgun on there so things got out of control or a passenger was became aware that it was being hijacked they could have you know try to intervene and things could have gotten really messy so i just personally never really leaned towards this uh this, You know, the, the government setting this up to tighten the restrictions on, on, on flights to uh, prevent more hijackings.
3: Well, you know, D.B. Cooper could have just basically walked into that, you know, where the pilots were. I mean, the door they had at that time wasn't really secure. I mean, you could have just kicked it right open. It's not like the doors now, you know, going into the cockpit of the planes here in the last 20 years. They made some major changes for that the people can't get in. But I mean, back then it would have been just easy to, you know, take over the plane no matter what. I, again, you know, do you do you have feelings who this guy could have been? And and if so, what was his past? What did he do?
5: Well, I've always, you know, of course that's that's the thing for me. I just I had to know who this guy was. I mean, for like I said, just to satisfy myself to. The most extent who it was because I just became so enchanted by the story when I first heard about it on a TV show called In Search of with Leonard Nimoy in 1979 uh just became fascinated with it. I never thought I'd research, you know, d- you know, do a whole lot of research or even write a book about it, but I just always wondered who would this guy be. And I always felt that the, the guy was military. I just did. I mean, for for so many reasons. I just had that feeling. It just to me sounded like something a military guy would do. Uh most more specifically, a guy that was in special forces in Vietnam. Uh Vietnam, you know, that was during the Vietnam era and uh it just it to me it sounded like something a special forces guy would do. And uh and and be someone that could that could pull it off and remain calm and have the skills to do it. So I was always uh, of the belief that this guy was was special forces and spent time in Vietnam. And uh you know, I always knew the descriptions of D B Cooper all said that he was middle aged, so I thought that's kinda odd. Uh, you know, if he was in Vietnam, the average age of the fighting man was nineteen years old. Oh, yeah. uh, special forces guys were a little bit older, around twenty three. Uh, you know, because they had more training. But I just knew that if, if I ever ran across anybody that was special forces that was middle age, but still active, uh, that would probably be a good place to look. And lo and behold, I found somebody that that fit that mold. And, and that's, you know, that's after I had a really good understanding of all the known suspects in the case and knew all their backgrounds. I was really interested in a suspect named uh, William Gossett, who later changed his name to Wolfgang, and it was being uh, was being investigated by an attorney from Seattle named Galen Cook. was uh, would go on to Coast to Coast AM radio talking about uh, his suspect William Gossett, and then I, I became really interested in, in uh, William Gossett and thought this could be the guy because Galen Cook was such a great uh researcher and uh you know real well spoken and you know that's the guy that coast to coast like to have on big coast to coast fan of course or back from the art bell days and uh really became interested in him and then later uh, a documentary came out about another suspect who was in Vietnam uh by the name of Robert Wesley Rackstraw so uh became interested in him. They had a big TV show about him called uh DB Cooper case closed on the history channel. And I remember watching that show thinking, I hope they solved it because I really want to know who did it. And they start making this great case for this uh, helicopter pilot from Vietnam named uh, Robert Rackstraw. And then by the end of the show, it just completely derails fizzles out uh, they had Tina Mucklow, who was the flight attendant that spent the most time with D.B. Cooper, looked at a f- full table uh, of photographs of Robert Rackstraw, and she looked at him and said, this isn't him. Sorry, guys. I know you want me to say it's him, but I can't. This is not the man that I sat by for two and a half hours during this, this hijacking. So that was really a huge blow uh, to these people that spent so much time and money uh, pushing for Robert Rackstraw. So I w- you know, I was kind of deflated. I was hoping they solved it. And uh, I was reading a D.B. Cooper message board one day, uh, in which I never really participated in much, but I did like to read them. This one was called the D.B. Cooper Forum. There's actually two, the D.B. Cooper Forum and another one called the, the Drop Zone. And um, a guy named Bruce Smith, who's considered the mayor of Cooperville because he's been following this case for so long. And another commenter named Go- went under the name Snowman. We're talking about this ex-Special Forces guy uh, named Ted B. Braden. And he was part of an elite special forces unit that I, at that point that I read this, I had never heard of. It was uh, uh, the black ops unit in Vietnam called MACV SOG. And that stands for Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. Really benign sounding name. But these guys are the toughest of the tough that were over in Vietnam doing all the covert stuff. They were mostly over in Laos, which they called across the fence because we weren't supposed to be in Laos. No, we weren't. Because of the Geneva Accords, and that's what these guys were doing. They were sent into Laos to uh, to slow down the uh, movement of the North Vietnamese down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So when they went in there, they had to be what they call completely sterile. You couldn't have dog tags. You couldn't have anything identifying yourself who you were. If you were American, you had to have you know your your clothing, nothing to identify that you could be American because we weren't supposed to be over there. But uh, but uh, we were sending uh, these teams in. But they were they were called. Um, strike teams or uh, recon teams you would either be ST or RT and they were named after states uh in the United States and Ted Braden was on a team called um RT Colorado and these teams were made up of seven men three would be Americans and the uh the the team leader was called the 10 and Ted Braden was the 10 of team Colorado and uh the f- three Americans and the other members bouncing out a team were called indigenous fighters or mountain yards, which were an ethnic tribal group uh, in the area that the U S special forces would train. And they made really good soldiers. So they made uh balanced out a seven man team. So Braden got, gets over to Vietnam in 1965. And uh, he's, he's a member of Mac V SOG and his team is doing uh, um, prisoner snatches. They're, they they brain's team did the first successful wiretap in Laos, where they hooked up a machine and got North Vietnamese intelligence recorded onto tape, and they found locations of a general. Really hardcore stuff. And when these guys hit the ground over there, they were hunted immediately. Uh, the North Vietnamese knew they were coming in they had sometimes they were tipped off when these teams would come over there into laos and they were being hunted immediately they were doing daring skydiving jumps at night into a really hostile territory so there's no better training to to later become the guy that jumped out of a plane in 1971 and this is uh you know just a small part of ted Brady.
0: with lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere
5: His military history was being the, the team leader for Team Colorado uh, as part of MACB SOG, so uh, I was just blown away by even finding out about not only Ted Braden, but this whole thing called uh, SOG in Vietnam, and I just became fascinated with it.
3: Oh, there was a lot of stuff on in Vietnam. People would be totally shocked if they found out and, and even knew about to this day. I mean, there were so many different special ops going on in Cambodia and Thailand and all those areas. Uh, a- again, on this guy, did you be, were you able to trace more of his history going back uh, before his military or anything?
5: Yeah, I traced his whole life. I was very fortunate to do so. So, you know, they had some information about him on, that, on, on those message boards. And it was just enough for me to get started because I had to know who this guy was. And, uh, you know, so I found out, you know, his whole life story. He was born in 1928 in uh, Toledo, Ohio. He uh, signed up to join to go fight in World War II. He lied about his age. He was 16 years old at the time, and he got an aunt to go live for him. So he joins, and he becomes a member of the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles. And he does his training uh, in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And then he gets shipped off at 16 years old to go fight in World War II and saw combat. It, it's still at age 16. He's in the battle of the bulge. He's doing, uh, you know, he's jumping out of planes. He's already a paratrooper at that young age, uh, already seeing hard combat. So he, he finishes up world war two, uh, takes a boat back over to the United States. He goes to college for two years at, uh, Toledo college. And then, uh, you know, he's, he's already found out what his calling is and that's being in the military and that he's already found out that he's really good. at something, you know, just jumping out of an airplane, And uh, he winds up joining the air force for a while. That doesn't last. He's he uh, gets back into the army, and he's a skydiving instructor for Benning for a while. And then he finds himself in the early 1960s in the army, and he's in a uh, military jumping club called the Golden Arrows. And he's competing in skydiving competitions uh, as a member of the army all over Europe. And he wins most of these. I mean, he's in France. He's in Scotland. And, uh, you know, there's big trophies given out because he's so good at skydiving that, he's, that uh, he just knows that's his calling is jumping out of an airplane. He's just that good at it. And, uh, you know, he spends two years over in Germany and then he finds his way over to Vietnam in early 1965 as a member of MAGV SOG. And he's originally brought over there to train uh, other other special forces members that were part of something called Project Delta and how to do something called Halo. Uh, skydiving and that stands for high altitude, low opening, where you would, you know, uh, be jumping from really high altitudes, not to be detected, and pulling your ripcord at really, at really low levels, which is really dangerous stuff. But uh, Ted Braid was a pioneer of that. He loved being in Vietnam because there was really no restrictions on jumping. He one of his favorite things to do was to pull the ripcord under a thousand feet, which is which is suicide for most people, but he loved doing that. He loved pushing the envelope. And uh, it, it said of him that he had a secret death wish that was coupled with amazing survival instincts, uh, because he could just push the envelope of death but always come out alive. And that's what he did with his team in Vietnam, Team Colorado. He would he would walk open. He would walk on open trails over in Laos, which was a extreme no no because uh, the NBA would know where you were walking if you were on an open trail. They could track you and kill everybody in your unit and. Really, they wouldn't. You know, if they could capture you alive, that's what they wanted to do because they would torture you first. And uh, but he didn't care. He would walk on an open trail. He had the first night vision device in Vietnam. It was called a starlight scope, and that was given to Braden because he had so many CIA contacts over in Vietnam. They gave him this thing called a starlight scope, where you, you know, which was basically night vision back then in 1965. And it wasn't working properly. So there's a story about where he just got mad about it and threw it down and smashed it on a rock. Pieces <laughs> everywhere. You just don't do that because if the you know the people tracking you find that they're gonna know what direction you went, but he just didn't care uh he was one of these guys that just said you know just wasn't scared of death.
3: It sounds like it I mean, so you know he has all this background. How about relationship wise did he was he married? Did he have any children or anything like that?
5: He was married three times, and what a really interesting thing about that is. He was with his third wife. He had three stepdaughters and I was able to uh, talk at length with this uh, youngest stepdaughter. And, uh, you know, she was kind of reluctant to even talk to me at first until I told her something that that caught her attention. I was sending her messages through Facebook and I said, did you know that uh, Ted Braden had two biological children? And she wrote me back. She said, really? Like, question mark. She had no idea that he had two biological children. This is his stepdaughter that he lived with for years. And she had no idea. So this guy can keep a secret. One of his best friends, a guy that that I knew really well, who unfortunately passed away a few months ago. His name was in Ted's jumping partner from the Golden Arrows, a gentleman named Altair. Um, He had no idea that Ted Braden had two biological children. He was blown away by that, literally, because he goes, man, I knew this guy well. You know, he knew his second wife and lady named Patricia, and he would stay with them during the holidays. He was with them in Germany for two years, very close to 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 Ted Braden and Pat. And he said, I had no idea. He never told me he had two children so he could keep a secret. You know, very, very secretive guy.
3: Very interesting. Uh, What type of person was he with friends and stuff? Was he, he going, or was he again? Did he have this type of personality that he didn't care if something happened?
5: To his friends, he was really well-liked. His words were always measured. He did not cuss. Uh, Everything that came out of his mouth, he he would always hesitate before he spoke because he always wanted to choose the right words. He was very self-conscious about his appearance. He was always uh, wearing a coat or a tie or a sweater. And he often smoked a pipe. He did smoke cigarettes, which is important <laughs> because, uh, we know who else smoked cigarettes on that plane, but Ted Braden often smoked a pipe because it was sophisticated and he wanted to be seen as a sophisticated, as a sophisticated person. And, uh, people would said of him, if you saw him when he wasn't in his regular, you know, army clothes, you would think that he was either a Colonel or a professor was what they say, what they said of Ted Braden. He was just very fastidious about his appearance. He did push-ups every morning on a flat board. He did sit-ups all day. He was very fit. Is a is a you know middle-aged guy. When he got over to Vietnam, he was thirty-four. And at the type of the TV Cooper skyjacking, he was forty-three. Very fit guy. Uh, you know, his friends liked him. He did have a a violent side though. You know, he'd been in a lot of combat. He probably suffered from PTSD. Uh, you know, that people really didn't know what that was then. But, he, but uh, you know, I think he did have some level of mental illness and he he was very distant. His assistant team leader over in Vietnam was a guy named Jim Hetrick. And Jim told me that, you know, it took him, Jim, a long time to even forgive Ted Braden because he almost got him killed so many times and he couldn't believe <laughs> it. You know, so he did. He did develop a hatred for the for the man. But later he decided to forgive him because he just knew this was just a, a really screwed up war we're in. And uh, he remembers, uh, you know, Ted Braden would be drinking at a bar in Saigon or something like that, and, and, and or after a mission, and Jim would try to go talk to him and get him to know him better. And he just said, you just couldn't. He was, he was just so distant that you couldn't even really get to know him on a on a deeper level.
3: Interesting. Why do you feel he is the one that actually was DB D. Cooper?
5: I, you know, the the main thing that really pointed me in that direction first was we talk about. Uh, MacV Sog and Mac v. Sog was classified. When you joined to be a member of MacV Sog over in Vietnam, uh, they they would say uh, you know you'll get, you'll either receive one or two things: a body bag or a Purple Heart, because the casualty rate was a hundred percent in Sog. It was it was literally a, a suicide mission to even sign up to be in this group, and it was completely classified. When you joined up, they said you cannot tell anybody about this for twenty years. Not your wife, not your girlfriend. Even when you're done and go back to the United States, you cannot talk about it for 20 years. That's the the, the time limit they set on it. So after the 20 years was over, these men that were in this elite unit could talk about it. And then, you know, some books eventually came out. A guy named John Stryker Meyer would write one called "Across the Fence. And now people started learning about this black ops unit in Vietnam became very popular. So, of course, when uh, SOG became declassified, People would ask them that, that thought about it, like, hey, you know, uh, was there anybody among you that could have been D. V. Cooper? And there's only one name that ever came forward, and that was Ted Braden. There was never a second name. And among these people that were saying it were legends of, of special forces in Vietnam. A guy named – one of them is a guy named John Plaster. And this guy is just up there, you know. He's just uh, a yeah, special – absolute special forces legend, well-known and uh, he was asked, who do you think Dewey Cooper was? And he said, Ted Braden. Another guy was a guy named uh, Billy Waugh. I mean, Billy Waugh is probably the, the, this, the most revered person to ever been in Special Forces. He had a, a 40-year career between Special Forces and working for the CIA. He had a book called Hunt for the Jackal. Uh, he, was, uh, he tracked Bin Laden. When he was in his 60s, he 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 tracked down Bin Laden and actually could have taken a shot and probably probably taken him out, but he was told not to. Uh, Billy Waugh is uh, one of the top Special Forces legends of all time, and he was asked multiple times, do you think Ted Braden could have been D.B. Cooper? And, it, and he said yes and absolutely did not dismiss it. So these legends in Special Forces were all pointing to Ted Braden, and that's when I locked into him. I was like, I got to know more about this guy. And, and why they believe that. And countless others said the same thing. Uh, a guy named Jason Hardy writes these books uh, about Mac Sogd. Sogder. These big, colorful books, all these rare photographs that he collected. He interviewed many soldiers from Mac V. Sog. And he was, a, you know, he's into the D.B. Cooper case. And he asked multiple guys, who do you think D.B. Cooper was? And they always said Ted Braden. They never gave a second name, even out of Sog, which were about 1,300 guys. I mean, these guys were all the most elite. They all knew how to jump out of planes at night all-new survival techniques, and not a second name comes forward, that really intrigued me. Why wouldn't, among you the best ever, why wouldn't another name come up? And then another thing that points you to something like Magby SOG with D.B. Cooper is D.B. Cooper knew that you could jump the aft stair of a Boeing 727, and that was not widely known in 1971 that that plane could be jumped like that because the aft stair was in the middle of the plane where passengers could could board or, or, uh, or get off the plane, but uh, only people that were doing covert missions over in Vietnam would have had that knowledge. Even the pilots didn't know that. And another thing that happened was when D.B. Cooper hijacked the plane and it landed in Seattle, he wanted it to take off from Seattle with the aft stair and the down position. And uh, you know you know why? Because he knew he was going to jump out of it. and He didn't, didn't want to worry about that aft stair having to be released you know, in flight, he he felt more comfortable knowing the stair was already down, and he knew the plane could take off from the ground with that stair down. The pilots didn't even know this. Cooper well, did, and he it, argued for it.
3: Drew, wouldn't that also keep the plane where it couldn't go at a, to a certain speed? They would have to fly it at a slower speed with that down. If I remember right,
5: that yes, could be that could have been another reason why he wanted it down. And the pilots absolutely refused, and it was a point of contention. And uh, Cooper finally relented and said, you could take off with the stair up, because the pilots literally thought the plane would probably come apart if the plane took off with that stair down. But Cooper knew it could take off with the stair down, because he had that knowledge. And uh, someone in Mac V. would have known that from covert jumps that, that had been done in Thailand. And uh, that's just something they were they were doing with Air America over in Vietnam. So that's another thing that really points to a special forces guy that had that knowledge.
3: Well, it sounds like he had the knowledge because, you know, I remember at the time they were doing even tests. The FBI, you know, Boeing aircraft and, you know, uh, FAA and a whole bunch of different organizations were doing tests. That if the plane could even fly with it down uh, in all that stuff. So it it was this guy evidently knew the capabilities. Like I said, again, having the parachutes brought on people thinking, you know, uh, that he's going to have people jump out with him. So they wouldn't give him a faulty parachute, all everything. I mean, it was very well thought out. It wasn't something like, you know, tomorrow I'm going to hijack a plane and ask for
5: $200,000. It was very well planned. That's why it looks so much like special forces. It was highly intelligent. Using a briefcase bomb was a game changer. The FBI even said that at the time it was a game changer. It was very well thought out, which brings you back to Ted Braden. Uh, he had a what they call a general technical score in the army of one hundred fifty, and that's kind of an indicator of i q uh, that would be one of the it was like one of the highest G2, gt scores you could get. He was highly intelligent his own sister in law said of him that he was the perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality now Ted Braden was a criminal, we'll get to that but another thing that that really first intrigued me that I read first before I met a gentleman, his name is Hank Birch. And uh, and, the, and the the quick story of it is Ted Braden's over at Vietnam. He's over there uh, for for 23 months straight. That's a, it's almost an an endurance record, doing you know heavy combat. And at some point, at the end of uh, 1966 in December, he's in a bar in Saigon, and he hears that uh, mercenaries are being paid really good money to go fight in the Congo Wars. And he's thinking, you know, I want money. You know, I'm really <laughs> a really good soldier. I'm not making much as a as a sergeant first class. So I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave the, leave Vietnam and go fight in the Congo. So he just takes it upon himself just to leave Vietnam. Doesn't tell anybody. He just leaves. <laughs> this is this is this is all true. It's the craziest story you've ever heard. So I'm like, okay. So he goes back to the United States, and as he says it, his whole story is told by himself and in a 1967. Um, Magazine called Rampart, which is just great that his story's there, and that he got to tell it 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 was published in the magazine It's just so fortunate and he and he and he tells this story so he gets over to the United States over christmas uh and so it's early January now of nineteen sixty seven He makes his way over to London and then he makes his way over to uh Belgium and he's in Brussels because he's heard that there's a hotel in in Brussels, Belgium where they're hiring mercenaries to go fight down in the Congo. And he tells the story of how he meets up with these crazy characters and he winds up uh, finding the right recruiter and he winds up becoming a member of Five Commando, which is Mad Mike Hoare's unit, a uh, famous unit down in the Congo Wars. So he's down in the Congo and he's uh, under uh, an alias of a Canadian guy that, who was killed prematurely in a mortar attack in special forces of Vietnam. So Ted Braden's using the name of Canadian as an alias. Uh, which is funny because people speculate that D.B. Cooper actually, you know, when he hijacked that plane, he gave the name Dan Cooper. D.B. Cooper is just a media screw-up because they they found somebody's name over the AP, they got overheard, and someone accidentally wrote down D.B. Cooper, and that's how the name just stuck. So, uh, But that's not the name he used. He used the name Dan Cooper. But people thought that he took that name from uh, a Belgian comic book about a Canadian fighter pilot, you know, fictitious, of course, but went by the name Dan Cooper. So it's funny that Ted Braden took the name of an alias of a a dead Canadian from Special Forces and uh, signs up to fight in five five commando under that name because he knows, you know, he's trying to hide out from the CIA. He's already went AWOL from Vietnam. So he's over fighting in the Congo. He gets into the unit. They quickly figure out this guy. He's fighting uh, for this guy named Colonel Ralph Peters. And they quickly ascertained that this guy has the stuff. I mean, he's got every skill you could ever want in a mercenary, weapons, you name it. I mean, he quickly demonstrates to them that he's that he knows what he's doing. He never sees any combat over in Five Commando because somebody uh, tips off the CIA that there's an American down here fighting with us. So his colonel, Colonel Ralph Peters, uh, lures him to a hotel in, in the Congo. And he tells Ted Brady he needs to talk to him and they walk them down to the end of a hallway and uh, they, get, they get near a door and then all of a sudden four men come out of the shadows and they're all pointing guns at Ted Braden's head and they said, are you Ted B. Brayden? Uh, and he's like, I guess you caught me. You know, yeah.
3: Now, hey, and, Drew, uh, they, we need to take uh-huh. a break. This break's about okay. four and a half minutes long. We'll be back to wrap this up with Drew. So you're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio. Uh, just some sad news we just got. One of our regular guests, uh, John Lear. Uh, passed away here today and uh, I thought I'd share that to all the listeners and uh, he was a great guest a lot of good stories you know and I was planning to have him back on but I know he's been in ill health lately and uh, again my condolences to his family his daughter again John Lear just passed away we'll be right back you're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio. If I have a soul, soul If the ice is cold If I last forever If I'm your man If the time is over If tonight is my call.
1: Did you know Night Dreams Talk Radio now has a great store? And now's the time to get that Night Dreamer, that cool Night Dreams tea or Bigfoot mug. Night Dream store has lots of awesome items to pick from. All for the Night Dreamer. For details, check out our show's website at www.NightDreamsTalkRadio.com Echoes of Eden by Paul Wallace. What secrets of human potential lie hidden in the world's ancestral narratives? How are they connected with God, the Bible, and ET contact? From U.S. Senate briefings to ancient African ceremonies, from strange phenomena in Australia and Iraq to anomalies in Brazil and ancient Greece, the Eden series takes you around the world to discover why governments, military, and intelligence are interested in archaeology and initiation practices and why you should be too. And what are the implications for you and me? to buy Echoes of Eden. The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble and wherever books are sold. Echoes of Eden is endorsed by George Nuri. Paul has done it again with his Eden series, delving deep into the power of the mind to do incredible things. Are you searching for deeper answers when it comes to experiences with the Sasquatch and other cryptids? One man who seems to be taking that deeper dive is Ron Moorhead. His incredibly clear, scientifically vetted Bigfoot Sierra sounds will send shivers. In addition to these recordings, he's written two books, Voices in the Wilderness, which is the chronicle of interactions that went on for years up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And then his latest, The Quantum Bigfoot. Where he bravely goes, where others fear, and takes it head-on, again backed by science. The disappearing tracks, the pixelated images, and the screams in the dark. Oh well, All of this and more can be found at RonMorehead.com. That's www.ronmorehead.com. Are you into the paranormal? Then you have found the right place. Night Dreams covers the topics you want to hear. And Gary always has a great guest to take you for a real ride in talk radio. So buckle up and let's go for that ride with Gary. And we are
3: back. Hey, Drew, we got a couple minutes left before we have to wrap it up. Uh, again, how I I, I got to ask you a question. So everything does point to this guy, doesn't it?
5: Absolutely. You know, well, I mean, after that, uh, just real quick, he, he was put in confinement at Fort Dix uh, from for desertion, and that's when uh, a guy named Colonel Hank Birch, he's Colonel uh, Lieutenant Colonel, retired Lieutenant Colonel, was a captain at the time, encountered Ted Braden, and he was in a cell at Fort in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and he quickly was drawn to angst attention because ted braden had a tv in his jail cell he had cigars with filters on them in (laughs) jail and this is completely unheard of uh you weren't allowed to have filters because the prisoners would stop up toilets with them and you were absolutely not supposed to have a color tv or a tv (laughs) but in, in uh at fort dix as a prisoner for desertion and this is crazy so uh he asked you know Braden uh, told hank one day because you know, he was the supervisor over him as a prisoner and he said don't worry sir this is all going to work out Braden knew that somebody was going to protect him so it came the day for ted Braden's court martial there at fort dix and uh an hour or so before this court martial was going to happen a man named harold k johnson called over to fort dix and this guy was the uh the uh, The top guy over the entire U.S. Army, the only person hired than Harold Gates Johnson at the time was the president of the United States. Uh, he was the chief of staff of the U.S. Army was his title. And he called intervening on Ted Braden's behalf, and he said, uh, we're not going to have Ted Braden's court-martial today. And uh, they said, why? And he said, there's not enough MPs on the base to secure the courtroom. And Hank said, are you kidding me? This is Fort dicks. It's place is crawling with MPs. It was just a contrived excuse not to have the court martial. So they wound up giving Ted Braden a general discharge from the military after desertion and Braden balks at this. Cause he wants his special wristwatch back. <laughs> uh, this is unheard of. This is a completely true story. Uh, I know Hank Birch. He even uh, has the stories recorded on another a podcast that I did. It's it's, this has never happened before. You, you, you desert from the battlefield and you get a general discharge and he even balked at that. And Ted Braden had to promise never to join the military again. Uh, you know, So he shows up later, Ramparts Magazine. So there's so many things that point to Ted Braden. And one of the main things that I point to, it's just one of many, is a letter that was written, that was sent in by someone claiming to be D.B. D. Cooper. There were six uh, letters sent in from people claiming to be D. Cooper. A lot of them were all signed D.B. Cooper. And I never felt that D.B. Cooper would use the name D.B. Cooper because, of course, it was always Dan Cooper. So a letter showed up to the Portland Oregonian newspaper, on march 28 1972 so this is just a few months after the hijacking and it reads just a short it reads this um uh, gentlemen this letter is to let you know that i'm not dead but really alive and just back from the bahamas so your silly troopers up there can stop looking for me that's just how dumb this government is i'd like your articles about me but you can stop them now dv cooper is not real I had to do something with the experience uncle taught me. So here I am a very rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to world idiots and no work for me. I had to do it to relieve myself of frustration. I went out of the system and saw a way through good old Unc. Now, you know, I'm going around the world and they will never find me because I am smarter than the system's lackey cops and lame duck leaders. Now it's uncle's turn to weep and pay one of its own some cash for a change. And please tell the lackey cops, D.B. Cooper is not my real name. Sincerely, a rich man. So that letter really stuck out to me because the first five, as I said, were all kind of cryptic. Some were cut out uh, pieces of letters from Mm -hmm. Playboy magazine. They they were all signed D.B. Cooper. This one was not. It says D.B. Cooper is not real. It's not my real name. And it says the experience that Uncle taught me. Well, that's obviously he's talking about the military. The military trained him to be. Uh, Somebody that that would have the ability to jump out of a Boeing 727 and come up with this caper in the first place. And fortunately, you know, having the Ramparts magazine article in the part written by Ted Braden, we know that this is how he spoke. And shortening Uncle Sam to uncle or unc is is not normal. Usually when you refer to Uncle Sam, it's just uh, Uncle Sam, right? So this is the last paragraph Ted Braden wrote in 1967 in Ramparts magazine. He says this, I need work and I don't mean driving somebody's truck. There is a great need for people with my talents, but unfortunately the CIA is doing the hiring or the others because of the CIA I lack the funds to make a contract interesting. Evidently I'm on the agency's blacklist and that makes it difficult to contract other employers from this country. Those who can use my help in Latin America are trying to fight using indigenous and foreign idealists. Which means no money for the professionals. It's too bad Schnosner, Rojas, and Somoza are in so tight with and this is in quotes, Sam. He's condensing Uncle Sam to just Sam. Otherwise they would pay well. I'd like to go back to the con- to congo, but I don't think they'll let me. Too bad because the anti Motubu boys are making a bundle. So there's more in that ramparts magazine that reads just like this letter. The military trained him to be able to have these extreme talents and uh it's like he says in the letter, I had to do something with the experience Uncle taught me. Well, they taught Ted Braden to be the best uh, skydiver that probably ever lived. The guy had 900 log free falls. Uh, he, he he could have done the D.B. Cooper jump blindfolded drunk and hung upside down. And he would have been one of the only people on the earth that could have done uh, pulled that whole thing off and not been scared. He also knew that if he did get caught, that they were going to have to let him go because he had so much dirt on the cia for being a, a, a cia contractor because cia ran Magby sog in vietnam. oh yeah
3: they did he knew
5: all that he knew all the dirty stuff in vietnam and not just that i learned about him he knew stuff that they were doing globally so and he had friends in high places like uh jack singlob a famous general that founded the cia uh world war ii guy that, that ted braden knew Uh, is a member of the golden arrows because singlob used to come by the jump club in germany and knew braden from there and then later jack singlob becomes the chief of mac Sog in 1966 Uh, and interesting enough too, billy wa that i mentioned earlier that fully believed ted braden was db cooper was jack singlob's right hand man in vietnam so uh these guys knew who cooper was singlob like i said co-founded the cia he knew everything uh, he was Braden's friend. He could have got him out of trouble. He's probably what got him out of Fort Dix in confinement. Uh, Braden knew that if he got caught for this, they were going to have to let him go. And I truly believe they always knew that it was him.
3: Well, it sure, it sounds like it's him. You know, FBI here, just recently, two weeks ago, I think there was an article in in the news that they were narrowing it down, you know, finally. And maybe they're going to announce who they think it was. And And you know what? That would maybe be closure. Well, Drew, how long did it take you to write this book?
5: You know, it took about, unfortunately, I had a really good editor that that, uh, put a lot in, in, you know, this uh, jumbled mess into a, a, a readable form. Uh, but it took about six months, and it, it's you know it's a, a pretty lengthy book because it's a lot about Ted brain's life as a, as a young boy, and then and then we get into the Cooper stuff. And at the time that I wrote it, you know, I thought there was a pretty good chance that Ted Brain could be DB D. Cooper, and the book's about two years old now. And I'd say uh, now I'm I'm far more confident that he was Cooper than when I wrote the book, for it, a lot of reasons.
3: Well, it sure sounds like it from what you described, and you know, again, it was you, you mentioned you know one of the people that they it was pl- claiming. Uh, it was either in Battleground or Kelso was claiming to be, you know, D.B. Cooper. It was one in Bonnie Lake, believe it or not. Uh, I mean, a lot of people were claiming they were D.B. Cooper because they wanted their couple minutes of fame. Uh, and, to, you know, I, I don't know. A very interesting whole everything about it. And maybe one day this will be cleared up. Where can they find your book, Drew?
5: They can find it on Amazon.com. It's called Paratrooper of Fortune, the Story of Ted B. Braden.
3: Now, do you have a website or anything you can share?
5: Yes, there's a website. Uh, my website is called DrewBeasonBooks.com. And I also have a YouTube channel that's just my name, Drew Beason. And I uh, do a lot of D.B. Cooper stuff, of course. Uh, the Yuba County Five case, which is very interesting. Uh, about five men that went missing and the Plumas National Forest in 1978. And, of course, a lot of Zodiac Killer stuff.
3: Okay, well, maybe we need to get you back on on the Zodiac Killer case, because that that would be a great subject. Hey, Drew, I want to thank you so much for coming on, my friend.
5: Thank you. I've really enjoyed it.
3: Okay, my friend, you take care. You too. Well, again, uh, we lost somebody uh, that was a, well, a mainstay. John Lear passed away here today. And, you know, if we... How can I say it? I mean, I really didn't know John Lear that well. You know, I, it took me and my producer a couple years to get John on the show. And then after he was interviewed, he actually really liked the show a lot. Uh, he was a great friend of Art Bell. And if he never connected with Art Bell, there would have been no Art Bell show. You know, in the paranormal and conspiracy, it would have never happened. Art Bell was doing, you know, talk radio, talking political, talking about politics. And John Lear, you know, went to the studio and said, You know what, Art, I got an idea. I got an idea how we can take you worldwide, nationally, and all this stuff. And he explained to, you know, Art, you need to talk about the paranormal. You need to talk about UFOs and stuff like that. And Art. You know, told me he thought about it for a few minutes, and he goes, "You know, you're right," and it was a big change for Art because, you know, again, he was noted for doing political and stuff out of Las Vegas and and other stations, and and he made that move. And without the, you know, Art Bell show being paranormal, you know, we wouldn't have all these paranormal talk shows out there. And it all, if you think about it, it is all because John Lear hit up Art Bell and convinced Art Bell he should talk about conspiracies and talk about the strangeness and stuff like that. And, you know, John Lear had really felt really, really. Now you can jump in here, James. He felt that we never went to the moon, that it was a hoax. And he had his own theory about it. Now, a little bit about the background of, uh, john lear his father is the one who created the lear jet he had a falling out with his father and uh, never got involved with you know building and marketing the the lear jets he went on his own he flew like a hundred and some 60 some different aircraft in his uh, uh career he also was connected with the cia am i right on that james
2: Oh, yeah, he flew for the CIA uh, several uh, different missions. He also held, I forget, I think 15 or a lot of speed records and a lot of different aerial records. As a matter of fact, he was a legend in the aerial uh, flight field, and he did. He flew, I think, 168 uh, different planes and stuff. He flew a lot of stuff. He, he was a really a pioneer. In the area, uh, in the field of, of flight, for sure.
3: Oh, yeah. And, you know, he's the one that originally told Art Bell, when you die, don't go to the light. It's a trick. Go towards the darkness. Now, I asked him on the last time he was on our show back a couple months ago, and he said, you know, he revised that. He said the person that gave him that information didn't know what they're talking about. He said, you want to go to the light. You don't want to go to dark- through the darkness, And, you know, he had Art Bell so nervous about that for so many years. I remember talking to Art Bell on the phone and he goes, you know, if anything ever happened to me, I don't know. It really, he was obsessed with it. He didn't know which way to go. Hopefully he went to the light. Trust me. Uh, you know, if he went to the darkness, I, you know, who knows where Art is at right now. But you know, again, I can't believe that John Lear passed. I know he was having a lot of health issues. His daughter was taking care of him. But, you know, it seemed like the last couple of times we talked to him, he was sharp as a, ever. And, you know, that and in his personality was back like John Lear was.
2: Yeah, and, and I, of course I would talked to him a few times to get him on the show and, and thank uh, thankful that he did come on the show. And I will say this too, on our show, he did kind of recant, uh, wish he hadn't told um, Art Bell you know, not to go to the light. So he did say that too on the show. And uh, I got to tell you, I remember seeing John way back uh, 30 plus years ago in many different documentaries. And um, boy, it, w- it was amazing the stuff that I've learned over the years just from him alone. And now that I look back at it, and you're right, if it wasn't for him, uh, Art Bell, went and, it was like a whole domino effect with Art Bell and, and then all of these other people, you included.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't be doing the paranormal, and nobody else would be hardly doing the paranormal. He made paranormal a household name, UFOs a household name, and all that stuff. Now, I'm going to share one story, I know my regular listeners know it, but John Lear did, at near Area 51... They went out to the desert. Now, this is many years ago. And he liked getting, you know, kind of rowdy at one point in his life, like real rowdy. And what they did is he rented a Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And he drove out there. He also had a friend that had a helicopter. And they had a fifty caliber machine gun. And, you know, and then they had some explosives and all that stuff. Well, they decided they were going to take this rental car from enterprise and they're going to shoot at it with a 50 caliber. Now, can you imagine a 50 caliber is going to go one through like one side of the car and come out the other side. And they literally shot hundreds of rounds through the car. I mean, the car was like, like Swiss cheese. They even shot it from above in the helicopter and what the story was. And, And here's the thing. After their party was over, after they were done probably with all the booze, they couldn't drive the car back, so they had to put it on a, a flatbed and take it back to Enterprise. And you can imagine, when you rent a car, they, you, know, you have to sign this waiver. They, and you know, they, they look at when you return a car, if there's a teeny weeny scratch on the car, they're going to nail you for it. You're going to pay for it. They also look at the gas gauge. I mean, if you're down, a, you know, just a little bit, they, they charge you and gouge you. Could you imagine? Think about this, James, the guy who went out there with that clipboard to check out that car. I bet he shit his drawers.
2: I, I could just see him giving that car a once over. He must have about passed out with that clipboard. Like there wasn't enough um, empty blanks to check on that on that piece of paper on that clipboard. My goodness! And it, it's funny that whole uh, scenario of him shooting that uh, with that fifty or mag 50 millimeter or caliber out of that helicopter because those bullets they're, they're called tank busters they go through one side of the tank and out the other so you know there wasn't much left of that car my because it had to be pure shrapnel you know you know
3: oh it would have been and can you imagine the guys out there the clipboard and the guy's freaking out the car's full of nothing but holes and they the guy says to john lear this is the story is what happened to the car and John Lear, with his straight look, looked at him, and he says, well, this is what happens when you park a car in the wrong place in Las Vegas.
2: Yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. And it's funny, that story came to fruition through, through somebody that was there firsthand, too, that had witnessed that. It was like, they couldn't believe what happened, because it, it, it shocked everybody. It was like a little gathering they do once a year out there in the desert, you know, some kind of convention or they get together UFO kind of thing. And out of nowhere come this helicopter and just, you know, we've, they said, clear away. And next thing you know. Yeah, 50 uh, caliber. Fly.
3: Yeah, what's left of the car? Swiss cheese. Nothing much. Well, everybody, I'm jumping out of here. I will be back on Monday. Normally, we're not on Mondays anymore, but I got a great guest on Monday and I wanted him to be heard. I'm going to be off for a couple of days, getting well for a change And uh, no, it's not nothing to do with COVID. It's just, you know, when you get older, you get health issues and I'm going to take care of it. I want to be around a few more years. So everybody, you take care. Again, make sure you hit the thumbs up. Share us with your friends. Tell your friends about our show. And uh, everybody have a good one. We'll catch you on the other side of the campground. Everybody take care.
4: So you're just like looking at a mirror You're the one. Yes, you're the one.